Hey, Deviants, welcome back. Happy June, happy Pride Month, and happy listening to this week's newest episode of Dark and Devious. That's right. Thank you, Patrick, for that wonderful reminder that June is in full swing. And that means happy pride to everyone, whatever your persuasion might be. Uh, I can't promise that every single episode is going to be pride related this month, but we want to get that those warm wishes out there, regardless of what the topic of the day is. Right. So regardless of what we're talking about, we'll recognize you um, and uh, wish you a safe and happy Pride Month wherever you are, because um, it's a global Pride Month. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember when I lived in Korea, uh, Korean, like I was there for some of the first South Korean Prides because uh, South Korea still is progressing, you know, still Mm -hmm. working out equality and and uh, things like that that we take for granted in some of our more um, progressive areas of the world. So wherever you're listening, wherever your circumstances are, however out or not you are able to be, we wish you happy pride. And we are so glad that you're here listening to us. But yes, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Uh, I know we have a lot on our plate. I know we, uh, had a little bit of a gap between episodes but you were telling me like you've been working like a dog i've been working like a dog on various pride related things do you want to do do you want to start first sure i mean first um you mentioned pride but non-pride related um i have been now not so much but the past few weeks extremely busy with work um because we had summer summer session registration crunch time. So that was insane. Um, but then- Yeah, outside... try and say summer session registration five times fast. <laughs> That's a mouthful right there. Uh-huh. Um, but so like work was really busy, but then on top of work, um, similar to last year, I am on the board for Pflugerville Pride, which new listeners, Pflugerville is a uh, closet community of Austin, Texas, one of the biggest and gayest towns in America. <laughs> um, and Pflugerville Pride last year was our first Pride, which brought just um, about what we thought was going to bring 2,000 attendees. And it wound up bringing about 6,000. Um, so this year, we really ramped it up. We have double the vendors. We have about 90 vendors. We have two stages. We have more than 20 performers. Uh, we also have, Chris, I didn't tell you this, we have Pride After Dark, which Ooh. is 21 and up, VIP tickets only, and it's indoors because it is very adult. Um, oh, gonna be all a- right. I You get a, get some 
spicy pride action. Right. So the daytime, it's all like very family friendly. Um, like most pushing on this would be like uh, PG-13. But after dark, <laughs> there's a lot of skin, a lot of explicit and vulgar content. <laughs> um, I'm super excited for it because although we are so close to Austin, Pflugerville still is a small town in some senses. So mm-hmm. it will be really great and fun to do. Um, but in addition to that, for my own, again, back to work, I was working um, Round Rock, Texas Pride for work this past weekend, which was so much fun. Um, it was exhausting. I was there uh, for eight hours in 90 something degree heat. And I think I drank a at least a gallon of water, if not more. But it sounds like that's necessary <laughs> for that. But it was so much fun. The the amount of love and support that's coming to these smaller communities within Texas, it's just amazing. Uh, I don't want to get too much into politics, but, you know, Texas isn't great for the LGBTQ community right now. And mm-hmm. the amount of love and support and the amount of participants coming too. It's just really, really great to see. It shows that there's much more numbers on the loving side than the hating side. Um, so it gives me very, very much hope for the future generations of Texas and the other conservative areas around. Um, but yeah, so that's what I've been up to, just running around working for work, working for pride, working for my own personal pride which is volunteering um and all of this with a uh, recovering ankle how could i forget my broken ankle um <laughs> um update on that i am out of the boot uh, yay out of the boot out of the boot uh, ankle free i could go back to like 1910 and show my ankle um <laughs> but yes that's nice i i'm still like in a it's like a compression brace, so it's okay. much, much smaller, much more mobile. Um, and look cute in short shorts again, instead of having like a transformer leg. Uh, <laughs> so that's that paints a very vivid picture. The transformer <laughs> leg. Um, great. So you can uh, you can get out your go-go boots for that after hours pride. Yes, and my mini skirt. <laughs> uh, but but yes, that's that's pretty much what I've been up to. Other than me, not too many updates, to be honest. It's just been so which again, as you mentioned, we missed a week of recording and it's just because we've both been so busy. Oh yeah. Um, well, what have you been up to, Chris? Right. Well, I'm so glad to hear all the pride stuff is going well for you. Um, I am also prepping for our pride here in the Twin Cities. Uh I've got uh, my big concert. My partner and I are actually both doing this. I don't know if I'd mentioned that before. Um, We're both Mm -hmm. in the Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus. And uh, we are going to be working the booth this year for a little bit on on the weekend of Pride here in the Twin Cities, uh, which I'm super excited for that. It's one of those things where I'm like, why haven't I done this before? Like yeah, I'll sit at a table and tell people how great it is to sing with a bunch of other like queer people that are awesome singers and do fun repertoire. Like, um, 
I think I'll be very good at that. <laughs> I'll be evangelizing to all those interested uh, for that. So I'm really excited gearing up for that. We've been rehearsing really, really hard. I, I, I don't know if I've said it on previous episodes, but we're doing the music of Whitney Houston for this concert. And believe me, these songs translate in such a cool way for a men's chorus to be uh, singing. Uh, so that's really cool. Very excited for that. I've been working really hard on that. And then my other big thing that I've got going on is that my partner and I have been uh, gearing up for, this is our first big, we've been together for two years and this is like our first big, like get on a plane and go to another state trip. Like we've done shorter road trip type stuff, but we've never like bought plane tickets together, like booked a hotel room together, like rented a car together. It's wild uh, that it's taken us this long, but we're flying to Kentucky and uh, he's got some family down there and we're going to go see them. And I've also got a delightful writer friend, which I interviewed for my book, for the book podcast. Um, his name is Lee Mandelo, and uh, we are going to connect up and meet in person, which I'm super, super excited for. Uh, I can't believe it all worked out so well. So we're going to see a little bit of Louisville, see a little bit of, of the countryside. Um, I can't wait to see. I've heard Kentucky is beautiful. Uh, I can't wait to see it for myself. So that's awesome. I'm really, really excited for that. Yeah, you have a lot of really good things coming. Uh, so first off, Kentucky is beautiful. I've been there a few times. <laughs> I was going to say, you and your uh, mission to see all 50 states together. <laughs> we're only a few short. Husband. We're only a few short. It's funny, you were like, we've been together a few years. This is our first trip together. I think we were about, we were together about like three months when we went to Miami together. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> like, we are like, let's start strong. Um but no, that's awesome. I do like Kentucky a lot. So um, have fun that way. And then backpedaling to your first time, like working pride. I was just talking to a friend the other day. I don't think I have seen a pride parade in probably a decade because I'm always in it. Um, <laughs> right. I'm, yeah. I know a lot of times that's the case for me now. Uh, the last several, at least. I've been marching in the parade and yeah yeah um, I'm okay sitting this one out though <laughs> you deserve it um I was we were actually going to sit this one out this past year but just what's today uh just two days ago I caught wind of an organization that I'm passionate about and they have a they have a float so I was like oh I'll do that um it's like I just I'm addicted to the fame you feel like a celebrity when you're in the parade. Like when you're walking, everyone wants to reach out and like high five you or give you hugs. Um, it's just fun. Right? It's, it's it's good energy being in a parade. Yeah, it is. It's so much fun, and I do miss actually seeing everything. But I think I'll just continue to be a be a a parade pageant up on my float. Uh, <laughs> that sounds um, wonderful. But yeah, speaking of pageants, one last thing personally for me, um, and Pride adjacent, but not during Pride Month, 
for those that listened, our, our dedicated listeners who knew about my involvement with Dragween last year, which is a big fundraiser in the city of Austin for Austin Roundup, which all the proceeds go back to Austin Roundup, which is a alcohol drug rehabilitation program. Um, we are having our 2023 initial Dragoween casting call and the original or the uh, initial rather rehearsals in July. And it just happens to fall on my birthday, which that would be like such a fun birthday present. Get back into like my drag family, um, see people I haven't seen since our show last year, you know, almost a year. And um, I'm really excited about it. Um, last That's year was awesome. my first year doing drag. And it, I, I'm definitely not a professional drag queen. It, it was too much work. Like, I cannot do that every weekend. But this, like, once a year thing, I definitely can do. And I'm super excited for it. Oh, that's awesome. I know you, like, I remember you having so much fun last year. And it's for such a great cause. Like, it's really, like, win, win, win across the board so i'm glad that you're doing it again it sounds like it's gonna be a blast it will be i'm excited um, well awesome well now that we are all prided out mm-hmm. um do we want to get to some juicy true crime goodness i think it's about time we do i think so well let's get to it Okay, Chris. So I've done, I think, the past three or four episodes, and I've been wanting to hear a tale from you, like, because you always right. do such, I'm the type of person where, like, I I watch different things, I read different articles, but you always have, like, one source that you deep dive into. So I'm curious, what was your deep dive into this week, and what are you about to tell us? All right. Well, I'm super excited to do this one. Uh, This my new source is really great. um, And I think it'll allow me to do a lot more stories, a lot more efficiently. Um, So I'll I'll get I'll uh, mention that here in my intro. So I'll, I'll get started with what I've got written. Okay. So the insanity defense holds a rare and unique place in the American justice system. For some, it has been used effectively to de- uh, by defense attorney- attorneys to spare their clients' lives. But for others, it has been thrown out as a last-ditch effort to try and cheat the system when a dastardly criminal has no other options left. Then again, couldn't anyone argue that a person who is willing to kill another human being is suffering from a particular type of madness? Today, we will meet a woman who is an early example of this defense, who is made all the more fascinating because of the public's uncertainty of her sanity. We're going to talk about Lizzie Halliday, a woman who racked up a body count of at least five that we know of in this uh, in the span of the end of the 19th and beginning of the early 20th century. And for source material uh, for today's episode, I'll be using the chapter entitled the worst woman on earth 
from this delightful collection of female fiends called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History by Tori Telfer. And I know they can't see it, but Patrick, <laughs> this is what it looks like. I, I saw so this. I was just going to say, so, so for all of our listeners, we have a cover with uh, portraits of like, like drawings rather of women from turn of the century, like late 1800s, early 1900s on black and white. And then they are intermixed with things like scissors and pliers and uh, forks and wine glasses with who knows what substance is inside of it. And yeah, this and yeah, there there is a gun on there too. There there is a gun. <laughs> they weren't all silent killers. Uh, well, this this is interesting. So you know me, I love a good historical uh, murder, and then I also uh, was very intrigued when you're talking about like the insanity of the plea. I'm always curious about that. And then when you mentioned the first name Lizzie, Lizzie Halloway, which I know, but you're like. I also know Lizzie Borden was also looked at for like Ooh, insanity. Yeah. So at first I was like, oh my gosh, Lizzie Borden, <laughs> this is so infamous, which we definitely can do another day. Oh, for but sure. I've I've Lizzie... listened to some really interesting takes on the Lizzie Borden whole case. Uh, yeah. Which would be very fun. But Lizzie um, Halloway, I recognize the name. Right. I think, I do not know the story at all, but I know of the story. So I am mm -hmm. very interested and excited yes um but yeah this this collection though is kind of perfect for me uh because um every chapter has a different woman uh a, a different deadly woman um and it actually it has a chapter on Elizabeth uh bathory Ooh, and um, Kate Bender, who uh -huh. they've both been mentioned on this podcast in yep. previous episodes. Uh, so it's a great, great resource with clear, manageable chapters, which makes it a perfect source for today's episode. Um, so an, an additional information was sourced from an entry at allthingsinteresting.com, also titled The Worst Woman on Earth. Okay. So let's meet our subject for today. We're going way back in our time machine to 1860. It is around this time that Lizzie Halliday was born Elizabeth Margaret McNally in County Antrim, Ireland. The exact date and place of her birth is unknown, so this is about as accurate as we're going to get. Uh, so uh, she was one of nine siblings and was known to be the most difficult and violent among them. The family immigrated to the United States sometime later in the 1860s. Growing up, Lizzie seemed to experience her emotions in intense extremes. She was quick to anger, and her brothers and sisters reported multiple instances when she attacked her fellow siblings and even her father. On the other end of the spectrum, when she returned home from being away for some time and found out that her father had passed away, she threw herself on his grave and began scooping the dirt away with her bare hands. So like real dramatic. Yeah. Like sobbing, 
trying like I, what was the end game for that like were you gonna dig with your hands down to the casket like that doesn't sound like that would be a great idea no i'm not all those dirt under those fingernails like right and i'm sure they didn't have those nice little like instruments on the like to get your to get right, under the yeah, nail yeah. You know, or if there that did exist, it was probably like a luxury to have. Mm-hmm. So to add to her peculiar nature and mood swings, Lizzie was also oddly propor- proportioned. She was described as short and muscular with a large nose and forehead, which could not have been easy for her as multiple went or multiple people went on the record as being repelled by her looks, including a former landlord who called her naturally ugly. Which, side note, that's, like, so rude. Like, imagine beans, like... (laughs) Imagine someone, like, calling up your old landlord to ask about what kind of person you are, and, like, the most memorable thing they have to say is that you're ugly. (laughs) Oh... Oh, yeah, so that, that that is not a good feeling. No, that would feel pretty bad. So uh, if her landlord and her neighbors and such were talking about her looks behind her back, just imagine how they acted to her face. Like they probably uh, did not necessarily treat her the best. And, you know, face to face, if that's right, how for they, sure. they thought about her. Uh, so that must that on like. In all honesty, that must have been hard for her, which is like the only bit of sympathy that she is going to get out of me because it pretty much goes downhill from here. Mm. Now, even though she wasn't particularly well-educated, Lizzie was quite cunning. She particularly put this to use when it came to money and she would scheme up just about anything to attain it. Coming from a poor immigrant family, it makes sense that she would want to improve her lot in life, but her way of going about it was not always ethical. When it came to her employment, her bosses saw her at best as odd, and at worst, they were downright afraid of her and her mood swings. When one employer tried to correct her baking methods... Lizzie went screaming to the courthouse, claiming that her employer had assaulted her. Wild accusations and outrageous behavior would continue to be a theme in her life. She threw a knife at a young man who teased her and spit in the face of a little girl and uh, also tried to arrest two young boys for pointing their toy pistols at her. So it sounds like she's a bit of an overreactor to some I was gonna say it seems like she's a little bit unhinged yeah she's a little dramatic which, which I I hope is just like her temperament I hope you know as you mentioned like there's probably not much good to say about her but I do hope that if she has these behaviors and these type of reactions that it was just her personality and like she wasn't suffering from like some sort of like mental um confliction i guess is the way to say you know like yeah um because mental health was not taken care of back then right so 
I know we're talking about like the second half of the 1800s here. Um, we're still a long way away from proper mental health care. Yeah. Um, although it makes me wonder, like today, she would probably be a reality TV star. Oh, like just marry her to a rich guy and she's the next uh, housewife. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Yes. I could totally see her throwing a glass of wine in Lisa Renner's face. Yeah. now despite her behavior lizzie had no trouble finding men who were willing willing to marry her though it seems that all of them regretted it sooner or later and she definitely had a type older veterans or pensioner types who would have a steady income Uh, now at age 15 she married a man who went by the name Ketspool Brown, but his actual name, I guess, was Charles Hopkins. Um, And he was significantly older than her. Um, Her husband had been in the British Army, but apparently was quite afraid of his wife. The two spent their marriage allegedly in fear of each other. Lizzie told her family that Brown had threatened to kill her, while he confessed to his doctor that he was afraid of Lizzie and that um, she had threatened his life. So here it's like, they're both telling stories to different people that they're afraid of their spouse. And it's like, this seems like a poor match. Yes. In the end, it wasn't at Lizzie's hand that, uh, that Mr. Brown met his end. Uh, but from the disease typhoid fever. A few years later, she married a Civil War veteran named Artemis Brewer, but he died a year into the marriage. Some say he died from his various ailments, but others suspect that he may have suffered an opium overdose administered by his wife. So already you're kind of seeing like a pattern that she's kind of going after like older sickly uh-huh <laughs> kind of guys yeah. and uh and you know like with this one it's a question mark of whether uh, his death was suspicious or not and you know if she did it then um you know she hit it well mm-hmm. you know no one was gonna be like oh this poor guy's life was cut short you know, because he had all these other ailments from being a war veteran. Right, exactly. Now, her next husband, Hiram Parkinson, ran off before the couple could celebrate their first year together. And then, not long after that, there was George Smith. And Smith was the unlucky husband to have been poisoned with a cup of tea. Why she did it is unknown. Now, Smith survived the poisoning, but the marriage definitely did not. Oh, so was that her first husband that, like, had a death scare and actually came out of it? Exactly. Yes. So uh, he must have been gotten violently ill from this Mm -hmm. poisoning, knew for sure it was Lizzie who had done it. and was like, okay, um, we're done here. You're like, what do you do? What do you do with that when you get... (laughs) When you wake up and you realize my romantic partner is actively trying to kill me, like, 
What do you, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I don't know what you would do with that. I I mean, I would hope that there is a speedy way to be like, okay, you get this person out of my life. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Now, there was one marriage that had showed promise, and the man was said to be young and handsome, but things fell apart when he admitted that he had, quote, unquote, pounded his first wife to death. Now, whether that's referring to a physical beating or something else, I I don't even know, but <laughs> um, it would sure send me running the other way. Uh that's but, like what okay so aside from the metaphors yeah what does that even mean right i mean it's one thing to say it as an innuendo yeah but pound if you're talking about the actual act of like hitting someone to death like beating them why would you say pound pound her to death like i don't know i mean it was a different era maybe that was the preferred verbiage <laughs> i guess maybe but it's it's like when i read that i'm like that is just so freaking weird <laughs> and also like why is this guy not in in prison like if he killed his first wife why i don't know unless maybe he's not in prison because it was the euphemism that we're thinking and they were just you know they were time travelers they were 200 years ahead right <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but i thought that was just too weird not to mention so <laughs> in in 1891 uh, she finally married the man who would give her her famous namesake paul halliday a Civil War veteran with a farm in upstate New York. In all, Lizzie was married six times before the age of 30, none of them being happy, and only the first one produced a child. Now, before she met Paul, but after she was with the weird sexy guy who pounded his first wife to death, <laughs> um, Lizzie opened a shop in Philadelphia. Now, either business wasn't great or she had a real passion for fire because she burned down that shop for the insurance money. The extra unfortunate thing was that she also managed to burn down some of her neighbor's places, too. Uh, for the crime of arson, she was sentenced to two years at Eastern State Penitentiary, Penitentiary and subsequently the asylum after doctors declared her insane. Upon her eventual release, her son Charles had disappeared. Uh, whether the state had taken, taken him away or he had run off, the boy hopefully had a better life than what he would have experienced if he had stayed with his mother. So I guess the um, in the book it said that her son would have been like 12 years old or something like that when uh -huh. she got out. And I'm thinking he was probably, I don't know. I, I don't think he was given to relatives or something like that. He was probably taken out of her custody and like given to someone else. And then it was kind of like, or he could have been like a ward of the state, right? Like, he could yeah, been... and it's and maybe he was like put in an orphanage, and yeah. then like somebody took him in, and I and you know records from that 
time period are probably shoddy at best. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people just kind of fell through the cracks and yep. that was that. But is it isn't it kind of weird to think that he could have like grown up and like had a family and and like I mean it's possible you hear those very weird like coincidences all the time mm-hmm. where people think someone's been dead for years and they wind up they have like they did go missing as like a three year old and then next thing you know they're thirty with two kids and like right. a spouse. <laughs> it is so, crazy. How that I can works. only hope that Charles. Uh, had like went on and had like a decent life because mm-hmm. the record doesn't really fill in any of those blanks for us. So when Lizzie met Paul Halliday, she found him in a, the little town of Newburgh, New York. She had left her criminal past in Pennsylvania behind and hoped to make a new start. So Paul was looking for domestic help and Lizzie was ready to play the part of the new girl in town. She told Paul that she had only been in the country for six weeks, fresh from Ireland. And he hired her and agreed on a salary of $40 per month, which seems like kind of a lot for back then. That does sound like a lot. Like I'm used to hearing from like, what this is like mid 1800 like 18 so this is like 18 like the early 1890s okay i still feel like like a dollar a day would be a lot right yeah so earning more than a dollar a day yeah seems pretty good i mean good for her <laughs> for the time right yes um Now, but soon after, he realized it would be cheaper to marry her and have her work for free rather than pay her for her services. Now, that is is very romantic. Isn't it so, so romantic? If my (laughs) husband would have told me he'd marry me and I could just stay home and clean, like, (laughs) and not have any income myself or rely on him for everything... That's the icing on the cake, having no freedom <laughs> of my own money. I just think it's so funny that it that it's like, oh, this is actually just more cost effective to just make <laughs> right. So weird. Now, um, Paul actually did find the young Irish woman oddly charming in a way, and thought that he wouldn't mind having her around for a wife. But that soon proved to be a statement he'd regret. Lizzie brought trouble with her to the farm, but no matter how much trouble she caused, Paul never divorced her. Which is, like, good on him that at least he's like, I'm going to stand by her even if she's a handful. Uh-huh. Um, and you'll see uh, she does some pretty egregious stuff that I think would be caused for divorce in most normal relationships. Um, but... I don't know, maybe she just keeps a really clean house and he really liked having her around. Or um, maybe like she she reminded him like of the pound town. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I mean, maybe she was skilled in in the art of seduction. Maybe. Now, one time in the spring of 1891, Paul came home to find his house burned to the ground. 
Lizzie, standing next to the ruins of the home, then nonchalantly informed him that his son, who was handicapped, died in the blaze. She told a tale that he had died while trying to save her, but when the rubble was inspected, it was determined that the son's bedroom door had been locked, and Lizzie held the key. Despite this horrible tragedy, Paul stayed with her. But less than a month later, her arsonist tendencies resurfaced and she burned down her husband's barn and mill. To her defense, she claimed that he needed new ones anyway. Which, could you imagine just be like, I know you were talking about building a new mill, so I just went ahead and burned the old one down. Or not even talking about it. Like... (laughs) Hey, I was looking at your mill and I thought the paint just seemed really bad and it's just easier to burn it and build a new one than repaint it. <laughs> that sounds like some some Lizzie logic right there. Mm-hmm. And also, um, I find it interesting that she's an arson. You know, mm-hmm. I do find arsonists very interesting. I Oh, for sure. You know, I don't understand that part of the brain that would cause someone to want to burn things for pleasure. So I just, whenever I hear about it, even though I don't understand it, I just kind of like to, um, I guess not theorize, but like hypothesize, like what is going on there? What is Lizzie doing? You know, this is like her first, her fourth fire now. Um, Right. Yeah. She burned down this, her store and her neighbor's places uh and, she burned down the house. She burned down the barn. She burned down the mill. Like, there's not going to be a lot left for you to burn down. And you think people would start to notice a pattern. Wherever Lizzie goes, fire happens. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, how unfortunate. Now, after that, she ran off with another man for a time which like come on lizzie this guy's willing to stand by you even when you burn his stuff down and you go and run off with some stranger and Um, not to mention um his son was found dead and she had the key that locked him in the room where he died i mean (laughs) like today they'd probably press some charges for that alone you know yeah yeah for sure um Now, when she ran off with this other guy, she was convinced that she was going to become a horse thief. Like, talk about career aspirations, right? Now, she was quickly arrested, but while she was in jail, she began tearing out her hair and screaming like a lunatic. Her antics were so outrageous that she was acquitted on account of insanity and was sent to Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. Where which, is Madawan? Um, I'm not sure where it is in New York. Um, yeah, it has to be in the Upper East somewhere. I will look it up. Okay, look it up. Uh, while you're looking that up, I thought I would mention that I, I feel like this totally sounds like the kind of place that they would send someone like the Joker. <laughs> it's like... Just by the name. Yeah, the state hospital for the criminally insane. The criminally insane part really adds uh, adds to it. Yes. Medawan uh, State Hospital for the Criminally Insane is located in 
the town of Beacon, New York. Okay. And where is where like top, middle? Oh, it's in the weird part. Um, sorry, everyone that lives there. It's in that little tiny section that just rounds south, like behind Massachusetts and Connecticut. Oh, okay. So it's in the far eastern part of New yes, York. Yes, it's a very, very little sliver of New York. Interesting. I wonder if it's still standing. Now, uh, Paul, Paul though, didn't believe that his wife belonged in an asylum. He claimed his wife was perfectly sane, but the doctors disagreed. She was kept there for a year and then declared cured and then released back into the custody of her husband. The two of them managed another year of marriage, but then Paul Halliday disappeared. When neighbors inquired as to where her husband was, Lizzie claimed he was away on business, but they weren't buying that. There was something weird about Lizzie, and they didn't trust she was telling the truth. Plus, they had witnessed strange figures creeping about and heard odd noises. Finally, the neighbors decided to investigate for themselves, and what they found was quite disturbing. Now, before we get to that big reveal there, um, there's some other folks that we're going to talk about. Now, not far from the Halliday Farm, there lived the McQuillan family. That was uh, 74-year-old Tom and his wife, Margaret, and daughter Sarah. It was the 1993 and the McQuillans got a visit from a strange woman calling herself Mrs. Smith on August 26th. Mrs. Smith said she was in the market for a cleaning woman. The mother, Margaret, took up Mrs. Smith on her offer. A neighbor picked up on something fishy about this Mrs. Smith, and she advised Margaret not to take the job. But she brushed off the warning. Ominously, as she drove away in the wagon with her mysterious new employer, she said, Goodbye if I shouldn't see you again. A few days later, Mrs. Smith returned to the McQuillan household in great distress. She claimed that Margaret had fallen off a ladder and needed to see her daughter right away, which is kind of weird. Like, shouldn't you take her to a doctor if it's something Mm. serious? Like, shouldn't that be the urgency? And then, like, you can tell the family about it later. Uh Uh-huh. But I guess Uh, it was also, like, pre, like, 911, right? Like, maybe it would be best to go tell somebody because they can go. I I don't know. Yeah, it just seems like if there's a serious injury, though, you're losing valuable time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, of course, obliged and Tom was willing to come along, too. But Mrs. Smith insisted that she only requested Sarah, which is, again, that's super fishy. This raises a whole bunch of red flags for me. And I'm sure Tom felt weird about it, too, but... I mean, what do you do when it's it's the late 1800s and your family mem- member might be hurt? Like, you you kind of just have to trust people, I guess. Exactly. Like, if you can't fix it, you have to hope someone else can. Yeah. And unfortunately, this family trusted the wrong person. Oh, no. Yeah. 
Mrs. Smith spirited Sarah away, supposedly to go see her injured mother. Two days passed, and Tom McQuillan had no word from his wife or daughter. Something suspicious was going on, and he set out to find Mrs. Smith and get some answers. The only problem was that Mrs. Smith was a false name, and she had given Tom a false address. When he came looking for Mrs. Smith, no one knew anyone by that name or description. So meanwhile, one of Paul Halliday's adult children, uh, so there had been six uh, now, but now five after the one had died in the fire. Um, so his adult son began to get suspicious over how long his father had been away mm-hmm. and out of touch. Yeah. He wasn't buying any of Lizzie's BS excuses. And after observing her for a few days, he went to the local authorities and they procured a search warrant. So like this, like Paul Halliday's son was like really, really smart that he didn't just like go in uh, like making accusations. Like he was very clever and just kind of sat back and, and watched how Lizzie was acting from afar Mm -hmm. just to see if there was anything weird in her patterns and like some of the things that she was doing. Um, If anything would tip them off, like he was acting like a real private eye, which I thought was very cool, especially for the era. That's what I was going to say too. Like, as you're mentioning that um, not to undermine, you know, people from the past, but uh the amount of calculation and skill and forethought it would take to set up like this investigation and almost kind of like um it's not the right word but like the surveillance watch you know where you kind of follow people yeah like, like yeah. he was like he was like what is she up to what does she do who can i contact to you know further look into this how can we gather evidence to basically get what is now like a warrant, right? To like look exactly. at her. Yeah. And again, people are people, people are smart. It's just whenever you hear about this like pre-technology, mm-hmm. it's super impressive. Yeah. Like this is now standard procedure. Like yeah. when you've got a suspect, you kind of stake them out and watch watch what they do when they think they're not being watched. Uh-huh. So. Now, when they arrived to search the house, they found Lizzie trying to clean blood out of the carpet, which talk about like being caught red handed, like Like, literally red handed in the act. Yeah. (laughs) And so like when they entered the house, she threatened to kill them. So not exactly the picture of innocence here. Uh, And she even attacked the constable with a board, I guess. I don't know what what that necessarily means. Did she, like, have a loose floorboard that she just, like, whacked him with? Or just some wood laying around the house? I mean, maybe she was, like, cleaning up the floor. Maybe there were... Maybe she didn't have to take up some wood, maybe? Maybe. I don't know. That's... But, like, that seems pretty bold to just uh, come at a you know zero to a hundred in like three seconds especially (laughs) towards like an official yeah yeah not really looking good on your side no now despite this violent outburst the investigation 
uh, of the premises turned up a horrible scene. In the barn, under some garbage and hay, they found the bodies of Sarah and Margaret McQuillan. Their feet and hands had been bound, their heads wrapped in cloth, and they had been shot multiple times in the torso. At first, Lizzie denied knowing anything about the grisly murders. If something horrible had happened, she insisted someone else must have done it. But later, when a curious neighbor asked about the bodies, Lizzie refused to meet his gaze and had a, quote, sneak look in her eyes as she turned from him. Well, that's never a good sign. Yeah, I just I just see like the horror movie kind of look where where it's like, oh, they're like, oh, I'm not going to say anything, but I'm saying it all with my eyes. Yeah. It seemed Lizzie might know more than she was letting on. But whatever the case, Lizzie was arrested for the murders and thrown in the uh, Burlingham jail. The search for more bodies on the farm continued, and one of Paul's sons snuck into the crime scene with a friend to see if they could spot anything that the police had overlooked. Which makes me wonder if this is the same son who, like, raised the concerns. I I bet it is. He seems to be kind of the inquisitive-minded one of the bunch. Inquisitive and also, like, suspicious and also realistic. Like, Yeah, yeah. Be like, like um, dad's probably dead. We just got to find out where she hid the body. And also, like, look at Lizzie. Like, yeah. In the kitchen, they noticed that some floorboards didn't quite line up. So they pried them up and found freshly turned earth beneath the floor. The men took a crowbar and and uh, stuck it into the loose dirt until they felt something. Um, so they like basically they kind of like dragged it through the loose dirt yeah. and until they hit something. Mm-hmm. And then when they felt the resistance on the unknown object, they ran for backup. So it, it must have been something where like it didn't feel like a brick or. Uh, a rock or something like it felt like something more like maybe more soft than that so it was really suspicious soon enough their worst fears were confirmed paul halliday's body had been buried under his own kitchen floorboards the body was badly decomposed but it could be determined that paul had been shot in the chest and struck so hard that uh, and struck so hard in the head that his left eye popped out of its socket. Oh, wow. Which just makes you think of like, what a freaking terrible sight this would be. Like uh-huh. decomposing body, eyeball hanging out, shots to the chest. Like he was in really bad shape, which is so sad because he was willing to stand by Lizzie through all that other bull crap that she put him through and then he ends up being murdered and just stashed under the floorboards yeah like not only did uh the woman that he stood for fought for and probably loved very deeply it sounds like yeah i not mean only at did least she loved a little him, bit yeah yeah not only did she murder him but in what sounds like such a brutal way mm-hmm. and then completely disrespected him by throwing him under the floor yeah It was a gruesome and shocking discovery, and news of the horror spread quickly. 
On September 8th, 1893, Lizzie was sent to uh, another jail in Mont... I'm going to say Monticello because that's how we say it here in Minnesota, but I also <laughs> could see it being said Monticello. I, I would um, probably say Monticello. Monticello, New York. If anybody is, is listening and they're from there or they are familiar with that, please let me know because I have always wondered because we have the, it's spelled the same way here in Minnesota, but we've always called it Monticello. Hmm. So I don't know. Is there a right way? Write us at dark and devious podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> nice. Nice plug. <laughs> Uh, when she arrived, hundreds of people came to gawk at the alleged lady murderer. She was quickly shuffled into her cell without incident, but every now and then she would let out a deafening shriek as though to appease the public on the outside that she was in confinement. So it was like, here we are every hour on the hour. Here's a shriek from Lizzie just to make to, you know, unsettle the public and let them know that she was still in there. Uh, like it seems kind of performative. Yeah. Again, or just like unhinged. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one or the other or a combination of both, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Lizzie really played up the insanity card. The screaming is a perfect example of what people thought of as her playing up the part of the madwoman. She would go on incoherent monologues, tear at her clothes, rip her blankets. She refused to eat and she would answer questions with nonsensical, unrelated responses. Most of this behavior happened when she was, uh, when she was being observed. So when she had an audience. Mm, if someone okay. were to catch her off guard when she thought she was alone, she was often uh, times seen as being peaceful and appeared to be in contemplative thought. Hmm. The public opinion on whether Lizzie was truly mad or not waffled both ways. The New York Times ran the headline, Mrs. Halliday, Not Insane, on September 12th. But then on November 7th, declared Mrs. Halliday was insane. The Halliday case was so sensational that it attracted the attention of one of the era's most accomplished investigative reporters, Nellie Bly. Now, Nellie Bly had become quite a celebrity for her work exposing abuse and corruption at the Blackwell Island Lunatic Asylum, and also the illicit baby buying trade in New York City. And what's really crazy, like how she exposed um, what was going on at that asylum was she basically got herself committed oh. and like pretended to be a like a lunatic and um and basically reported on the conditions that she encountered there, which is like absolutely amazing and and i i believe sparked a lot of reform with how people were cared for after that yeah i'm sure but also i wanted to ask um what so nellie Bly was like a huge reporter investigator Mm -hmm. but still what year was that 
And this is the 1890s. Yeah, wow. to have a like a woman be like a credible source at back that time, like mm-hmm. right. That's what is so cool about Nellie Bly is that she is a real trailblazer at this time. Yeah, um, you know there are uh, women reporters from this era, but she here she is not only. You know, she's not like writing the small stories. She's writing these huge exposés that are like changing public opinion. Yeah. Uh, which is a really cool, powerful place to be um, in a time where women did not have the right to vote yet even. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's impressive. Now, if anyone was going to get to the bottom of whether Lizzie was truly mad or not, of like Nellie Bly certainly capable of that task. Uh, So she goes to meet with Lizzie and after some non sequiturs uh, that she kind of started out with, uh, Nellie finally got Lizzie talking about the murders. First, Lizzie spun a wild tale that she had been drinking moonshine and eating bread and butter with her husband and the McQuillans when some person unknown chloroformed her and killed all of the others. And when she woke up, she had no idea what had happened. Now that is just like totally absurd. Like, okay, well, why wouldn't they have just killed you too? Like, why would they have kept you alive? Right. Exactly. Your story makes no sense. Like there has to be a motive. (laughs) Uh Like it's, it's just ridiculous. (laughs) So uh, when Nellie pressed Lizzie on whether she had noticed the blood on, on like the blood on the floor or the bullet holes or like the loose floorboards, um, Lizzie just said that she hadn't seen anything. Uh, she went on to blame some mysterious gang that liked to shoot their victims in the heart, though there was no evidence that these kind of marauders in the area existed. So she like was making up this fantasy uh, villain. And the, and it's like, um, oh yeah, okay. If there's really a gang going around killing people and shooting them in the heart, uh, why aren't there any other reports of this happening anywhere else? Exactly. Like, like you're just making this up. Uh-huh. On a second interview with Nellie Bly, uh, Lizzie had removed the chloroform from her story and this time insisted she had been outside when the murders happened uh, and, and that they were committed by this mysterious gang and that she had seen the whole thing through the window and thereafter feared for her life. Nellie wasn't buying this story one bit. She confronted her and told her that she believed that she was the sole person responsible for the murders. She further went on to claim that she didn't think Lizzie was insane, but insisted she was the shrewdest and most wonderful woman criminal the world had ever known. Lizzie just smiled in response. Nellie finally asked upon their parting, if she was repentant for her crimes. Uh, Lizzie smiled again and gave a chilling reply. God will send you back to me. 
which totally sounds like something out of a horror movie. Again, mm-hmm. like I this would be great uh like great material for a horror film. But could you just imagine her just in this small creepy voice just being like God will send you back to me. Right. And it's like, does that mean you're going there to like be punished to like relive that experience? Like it's so many things you could go down. Right. It's, it's great. Cause it's cryptic. It's unsettling. It's just, you, you can't make that up. No. Now, while Lizzie remained imprisoned, she grew more and more violent she attacked the sheriff's wife, uh, which what she was doing in there, like who, like, I wonder if she maybe like cared for female inmates or something like or that. Or she might have also just been like the, I mean, prisons are smaller back then. So she may have just been like the lady that brings around the lunches, right? I yeah, mean, that could be. Um, but yeah, she attacked the sheriff's wife. Again, not going to win you any brownie points there. Mm-hmm. Um, she hid the steel shanks from the soles of her boots to be used as weapons. Uh, she tried to set her jail cell on fire and even went on a hunger strike. So now, there's that all fire of... trend again. Again, yes. Yeah. Do not give this girl matches. <laughs> or a magnifying glass. Yeah, or <laughs> a lantern or two sticks. <laughs> Like, she should maybe just be in a padded room. Probably. Uh, Now, when all of that didn't help, uh, she attempted to hang herself and cut herself with broken glass from the window of her cell. After those outbursts, um, she was chained to an iron ring in the middle of the floor of her cell. Despite this wild behavior, some still called it an act pointing particularly to her hanging incident, um, which apparently when she tried to hang herself, um, she waited until uh, like she was expecting the sheriff to come by on like when he was doing his rounds or something like that. Um, So she waited until she knew she was going to have an audience. Uh Um, So it makes that I could see be like, okay, Maybe this is performative that she mm-hmm. doesn't actually want to die, but she wants to, people to think that she wants that. Yep. Cause that would gain her sympathy and she could not be sentenced to death. And exactly. Just... Um, now others though thought that the suicide attempts were all too real after all. I mean, she did mutilate herself and, you know, causing quite a bit of her blood to spill, you know, at that time, like if you, you're like digging into your arm with a piece of glass, um, you could bleed out if nothing stopped it. So right. that's, that's a big risk. So I could see that being uh, a legitimate attempt. Either way, it would be up to the trial to determine whether Lizzie was to face the death penalty or to be spared due to her insanity. The trial took place that following June in... Monticello, we'll say Monticello this time, Monticello, New York. Hundreds turned out to catch a glimpse of the alleged murderess and to get a front row seat for the trial. Lizzie's defense lawyer was a man named George H. Carpenter, 
and he was leaning heavily on the insanity defense. The prosecution, though, tried to prove that money was the motive for the murders and that she had calculated the killings. The defense proved many of the prosecution's points. The bullets matched the gun. Um, rings that had been taken from the victims were found in Lizzie's possession. And there was blood on the on the floor of the house. Now, Mr. Carpenter couldn't prove that his client was innocent and even went so far as to claim the blood could be explained away as menstrual blood as Lizzie didn't take the quote-unquote usual precautions taken by women. Uh, the, this was a pretty lame explanation, though it did help portray the image that Lizzie was uncivilized and unhygienic, which yeah. made her look more insane than not insane. Yeah, that's very true. I was thinking, like, that's a really, really, like, very poor defense but then now that you said that kind of would lead in her to like in the fence and the fact that like she's not stable mm -hmm. um she didn't know what like look how crazy she is she doesn't yeah, yeah, even yeah. know how to take care of her menstrual blood like <laughs> it it just it seems like a far reach but mm -hmm. i'm sure people at the time bought it at least a little bit it's worth consideration right Right. I mean, especially when you've got a client like this, you're probably willing to to um, try anything to see what will stick, basically. Right, basically, yeah. To help bolster his case for Lizzie, he brought <clears throat> a, a jailer and an asylum superintendent from Lily's previous stint in jail. And both men testified to her unusual behavior. Uh, doctors for the prosecution, however, claimed that she was, quote, shamming and overdoing the art. In other words, some of her responses were so wacky that they came off as exactly what a sane person would think an insane person's response would be. Mm -hmm. So Carpenter fought passionately for his client asking the court for mercy for this woman who didn't appear to have a friend in the world. The prosecution took quite the opposite approach and asked that she be exterminated as an enemy to society. After a few hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty. They were convinced that Lizzie was not insane and had plotted and carried out the murders which meant that she could be eligible for the ultimate penalty that the justice system could offer, death. Now, Lizzie had the unfortunate honor of being the first woman to be sentenced to die by the electric chair, which this is like early electric chair, you know, so this is late 1800s. Um, I bet that they did not have that thing perfected. So yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like, so first, this is outside of like hanging. Mm -hmm. This is a very recent execution. Not many many women got executed, mm -hmm. um, like in the eighteen or late seventeen hundreds. But electric care, like, I agree. I didn't know it was that early. And then, 
did they know about the water sponges to like put on people like I'm sure it was so much worse and so much more right well and then. also the whole like clause in the uh, is it in the bill of rights or the constitution or I don't know the, the I sound so in uh so ignorant when I'm talking about this but um basically that there are there is a clause that uh protects us from cruel and unusual punishment i i would say probably at this period in, in time death by the electric chair was cruel and unusual punishment because oh very much it, you, very much so you could not ensure that it was a quick and if, like efficient death like it was probably insanely painful and did not always do the job right away so yeah, we're, I, we're uncharted territory here. <laughs> right. As if there's any nice way to do it, right? Right. That's true. Now, when um, this was announced, many thought it was not proper for a woman to be executed in such a manner. And a surprising movement grew to have Lizzie reevaluated for her sanity. Soon, New York Governor Roswell Pettibone Flower which is just a great name, by the way. Uh, so uh, Governor Flower appointed a commission that would determine her fate. The news was received by the press as a wise and humane act, and Lizzie was evaluated by three doctors. Under observation, it was found that she suffered from excessive menstrual flow, rapid pulse, extreme emaciation, and uh, even early signs of diabetes. She also rambled, cursed out others unprovoked, suffered delusions such as imagining a uh, river near her cell. Like, so she thought she heard a river flowing. Uh-huh. Um, all of this, the doctors acknowledged, uh, and but they also acknowledged her intelligence. Um, and simultaneously, they noted her inability to resist impulses. One doctor declared hers to be a case of conscious impulsive insanity, which meant that, yes, the lights were on upstairs, but she lacked the power to choose. So when a violent impulse came over her, it just kind of shot out without her conscious brain processing the urge first. It was clear to the doctors that she was dangerous, but she may have been act she may not have been acting violently under her own will. Lizzie was declared insane and spared the death penalty. Instead, she was sent to Matawan State Asylum for the criminally insane where she was to stay for the rest of her life. So this was quite a rare success story for the insanity defense, especially for someone who had been declared sane and found guilty of murder. Lizzie, no doubt, counted her lucky stars for being sent to the state asylum rather than the electric chair. Surprisingly, once she settled in at Matawan, she thrived. 
At first, she had outbursts and raved, but when the superintendent informed her that if she behaved politely, she would receive better treatment, Lizzie actually listened. By August of 1895, uh, she was docile and well-behaved, a model inmate. But little did they know, Lizzie still had a capacity for great harm. She became close with a fellow homicidal inmate named Jane Shannon. The two of them had concocted a strange grudge against a pretty young nurse named Kate Ward. One day, Jane and Lizzie snuck up behind Kate in, in a bathroom and attacked her. Lizzie threw her to the floor and stuffed a towel in her mouth while Jane held her down. They pulled out the poor nurse's hair, scratched her face, and punched her savagely. Luckily, some other attendants uh, came to stop the two women just in time. Kate Ward had been knocked unconscious but survived the attack. If they had not been stopped, they surely would have killed Kate. Lizzie was put in solitary confinement for the attack, but eventually was allowed back into day-to-day -day asylum life, where she once again fell into a lull of calm behavior. The next few years held small periods of interest for Lizzie. She gained 60 pounds after having starved herself early on. She, uh, con or she contracted measles in 1896, and in 1897, she became obsessed with having false teeth mm -hmm. and actually faked tooth pain until they allowed her to receive a set of re replacement teeth. So I have no idea why she wanted this so badly, but she would be like, oh, my tooth hurts so bad and nothing will ease the pain. And then they'd look at her teeth and be like, your teeth are fine. Like, we can't see anything wrong. And it's like, oh, but it's just so painful. And they're like, well, fine, I guess we could like remove the tooth and like if you like a set of dentures that only say white for like a year because you're in the <laughs> year 1900 and there's no fluoride. Um, <laughs> that That is very weird. It's a weird little obsession. Um, yeah. She was very happy to get those that those replacement teeth, though. But what would have normally been a slow, quiet descent into obscurity was interrupted when Lizzie crossed paths with a 24-year-old attendant named Nellie Wicks. I don't know why there are more, more than one Nellie in this story. I, don't, I guess that was a popular name at the time. So Nellie was one of the best employees at Matawan and had dreams of leaving and becoming a nurse someday. Lizzie, who was now in her mid-40s, was one of Nellie's star patients. Her good behavior under her care had even earned Lizzie sewing privileges, which granted her limited access to fabric, thread, and scissors. Lizzie still occasionally muttered vague threats uh, at this period of her life, but by now she was seen as someone who was all bark and no bite. You know, it'd been a long time since she had had any physical outbursts. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, it was kind of one of those things where like, 
oh yeah, that's Lizzie over there. She likes to mutter threats to herself, um, but you know, she doesn't mean it. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> and no one seriously thought she was a threat anymore. But in the autumn of 1906, Lizzie's favorite attendant, Nellie, announced that she was leaving. This broke her heart and she begged her to stay. Nellie, of course, couldn't stay on forever. And to this, Lizzie said that she would rather kill Nellie than ever let her go. The threat was not taken seriously, even by Nellie herself as she saw her special bond with her patient as being stronger than the violent thoughts. Nellie should have thought twice about the threats, though. Oh, no. I was I was worried that's where you were going. Yep. So one morning, again in the bathroom, Lizzie surprised her with a pair of scissors that she had taken from her sewing basket. She struck her victim hard in the head, and when Nellie was down, the um, she stole her keys and locked themselves inside. Which is kind of creepy because this shows that she learned from the last attack. Uh-huh. Because yeah. the the att- other attendants were able to get in and stop stop them. Uh huh. Yeah. And now this time she had the forethought to to. Be like, oh, I need to make sure I lock this door so they can't get in. Mm -hmm. She then stabbed her former caretaker over 200 times. Nellie screamed for help, but the other attendants couldn't get through the locked door in time. When they finally got through and they had to break the door in, it was too late. Nellie Nellie Wicks became the first female law enforcement officer to be killed in the line of duty and the last victim of Lizzie Halliday. Wow. When they asked her why she had done it, she said, she tried to leave me. Oh, it just gives me chills again. Oh, so, so what happens with, um, um, Lizzie, like, goes on there yeah well lizzie remained in the asylum under close watch for another decade and a half after the nelly wicks incident and then she died on june 28th 1918 from bright's disease which is a perpetual inflammation of the kidneys she is estimated to have been around uh, 58 years old and by that point had spent nearly half of her life in the asylum. She was buried in the asylum cemetery where the only marker was a number, an anonymous end for a woman who caused so much misery. But the questions uh, remain, did she fake some of her quote-unquote crazy behaviors to gain favorable outcomes when she was finally caught and prosecuted. Though you could argue that trying to pretend to be insane for so many years could be considered a type of madness in itself. Whatever the case, Lizzie Halliday became the symbol of the awfulness that lurked in society. She was the greatest female horror that turn of the century New York had ever seen. And now you too know the unfortunate tale of the worst woman on earth, 
Lizzie Halliday. So there you have it. Uh, what's a super fascinating character. And I still have questions as to how much of what she did was performative and how much of it was just straight up uh, insanity. Um, I mean, I think it probably was the right thing to do to put her in an asylum for the criminally insane. Um, but I, I also... agree. Uh, because maybe she didn't have that like personality disorder, but maybe she was also so calculated to like make up this whole other side of herself where that definitely, I think, would be um a little bit scary if if she did have criminal intent to be able to make up like different personas mm -hmm. like who is she really yeah you know? uh i also really think she should have never been given sewing privileges like no matter how well behaved she was like i'm sorry like you're gonna have to stick to i don't know playing cards or something something that you can't you know use as a weapon to hurt mm -hmm. somebody because she had that incident where she had attacked the, the other attendant. And, you know, I, I just, it's like, you know what, let's just not take the chance. And unfortunately Nellie Wicks would have survived and, and who knows what she would have gone on to do. Cause she had a bright future ahead of her. She was young. She wanted to be yeah. a nurse. Think of how many, other patients she could have cared for and lives she mm -hmm. could have saved and it's like right. all that you know was taken from the world and who knows uh the, it's weird when you think about the ripple effects of uh, the impacts of things like this yeah um but yeah i thought this was a very interesting look at the uh the insanity defense it's something that we don't normally think about that much and um sometimes we we think it's taken for granted and you know something to think about yeah no that was a really unfortunate story but a good story to be told uh because again i before you told the story like insanity defense i'm who do you believe at the end of the day, right? Because mm -hmm. even in some of this story, her actions sometimes were really believing to some people. So it's like, who do you believe? So um, I just want to thank our mental health professionals. Out oh, there yeah. That... They, they go through a lot. And uh -huh. uh, the world is a better place for those people who are willing to do that incredibly challenging work so little side plug salute to our <laughs> yep, mental health professionals exactly. yes yeah, so so thank you mental health professionals as chris said thank you to our listeners um if you have any like questions or like feedback please email us or chat us at dark and devious podcast either on facebook or at gmail.com um and if you're listening, please do write and re like rate us because it helps us bring you a new story, hopefully every week. 
Yes, we, or as frequently as we can. Exactly, because we are human. Yes. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you for all that, Patrick. Um, and if there's nothing else, I guess we will see you next time. Have a wonderful, safe uh, kickoff to your Pride Month. And mm-hmm. until next time, bye. bye.